Thank you for downloading Sunday, December 1st sermon on Jeremiah, A New Covenant. Don't forget to mark your calendars for Wednesday, December 25th, our Christmas Day service at 10 a.m. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. I want to say thank you again this morning for being here. I know it's Thanksgiving weekend. I know you have every every excuse not to be here today. I'm sure there's people that have lots of lists of them. So thank you for being here with us. I also want to say thanks again as we've shifted to the Christmas mentality. Thanks again to the Williams, who also, the Trahans came to help out. The Martinez's came and hang out. And, uh, and my kids did as well, but they kind of had to. But, uh, you know, it was, it was great to have this a team here putting it all together, shifting our focus to this Christmas season. If you've gone to church over a while and been a part of a church at a Christmas season, sometimes you'll see, actually most of the time you'll see what's called an Advent wreath. And that Advent wreath will come out and it'll have four candles around it with one in the center. And the four candles have to do with hope and love and joy and peace. And the one in the center is focusing on Jesus. And generally what they take is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas and they do the hope and the joy and the peace and the, and the, um, the love. And then they bring it together on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and they talk about Jesus. And we're not going to do that necessarily. We're going to stick with our gospel project as we go. But even today as we're in our gospel project, you will see hope. You will see joy. You will see love and you will see peace. And I hope today you see Jesus as well. And, and as we're diving into this, we're going to be looking at these, these five words and the five words that, that really are the focus of the Christmas season, we're going to see today in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles with you today, I would love for you to open up the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is where we're going to be at today. And as we begin to look into Jeremiah, we're actually going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, before we get to it, and I'll say this uh, uh, as we dive into it, we need to do some background to get to Jeremiah 31. And to do some background, today we really need to do a lot of background. And that background takes us all the way back to the creation story in Genesis. So we're taking a big reverse and we're going back and we're going to look at the creation story in Genesis. And as we begin to look at that creation story in Genesis, you know that God created the heavens and the earth. And in the process of the creation of the heavens and the earth, he created Adam. And then he created Eve. And he created Adam and he created Eve with the desire to have an intimate, personal relationship with them. He only created one rule. He gave them everything they needed, everything they wanted, except for one thing. One thing that stood on a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, do not eat from that tree. Well, guess what? As you already know, probably, they did. Because some crafty servant came along and told them and convinced the woman and convinced the man that somehow, some way, if they ate of that fruit, they would be like God. So what did they do? They took a bite. And as they took a bite, enter in rebellion. Enter in pride. Enter in sin and enter in death. Enter a huge mess that ends up with God finding one person worthy. One person by the name of Noah, worthy to build an ark because he's so disappointed with his creation, he's going to wipe them clean with a flood. And in this, he sends a flood to basically start over, and the flood ends with a rainbow. 
And that rainbow was the beginning of God saying, I will not flood the earth ever again. Now, in this, and the reason why we go back to this is because this was the beginning of the big five. And the big five are covenants between God and mankind. Covenants between God and mankind. And this was what we call the Noah Covenant. And it's between God and Noah, although the thing is, it's a one-way covenant. It is God saying to man, one-sided, it's all God, no stipulations involved, I'm not going to do this. Now, one quick thing we probably need to do is as we look at covenants, we need to understand what a covenant is. So I'm just going to read for you the definition. It's basically this, a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants contain a defined obligation as well as defined commitments, but differ from a contract in that they're relational and they're personal. We can think of it this way as in a marriage. The love of a husband and a wife, they enter into this covenantial relationship with a goal in mind. A goal of to build a family, a goal to build a ministry, a goal to, to raise children. A goal, there, there's a goal in mind in it all, maybe a career. Whatever the goals are out there, you come into this relationship together. That is a covenant. Well, in this, like I said, it's a one-sided one, this Noahic covenant between God and man saying, I will not flood the earth again. Now, the flood did a great thing. It took care of the world's evil at the time, but the problem is it didn't fix it. It didn't cure the problem, and it came back. And we're still in the book of Genesis, and if you go to Genesis 9 through 11, you can read in there basically that man became more and more wicked, so much so they gathered together, they decided they're going to build this tower, and they're going to overthrow God. And God says, come on, man. And he wipes them, spreads them, scatters them, says this isn't going to happen anymore. And so what happens is we begin to have this question pop up in our mind. How will the relationship that God created in the beginning when he created man and woman said, I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with them. How is this going to get repaired? How is this going to get repaired? And the Bible story continues, and as it does, enter stage left, Abram, a guy we know as Abraham. And in that, God in his grace calls Abe to a covenantal relationship, our second of the big five. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. And in this covenant, it's the second one. And the deal is, is Abraham has to leave his land. He has to follow God wherever he leads. He needs to walk blamelessly in his sight before God and then train his family to do what is right and to just. And then those all sound all right. He also has to keep circumcision throughout the lineage. And everybody's like, okay, the first ones are all good. But that last one, hmm, not sure about that. And there's some things that we have to move through, and it's a conditional and an unconditional covenant. It's a little different than the first one. It's not just one-sided. It's between God and mankind. God and man each have a part to play, but ultimately, these promises will be fulfilled because God is going to make sure that they're fulfilled. The next book, Exodus. We see Exodus, it begins with Abraham's descendants multiplying quickly in the land of Egypt. Multiplying quickly in the land of Egypt, and that's part of the promises that, that God had made to him in this covenant. We see it happening. Well, that causes Pharaoh some distress. It causes Pharaoh's ego to get attacked. That these Israelites, these followers of God, were going to 
kind of outnumber all those people. So what does he do? He puts them into slavery. And in that, he, he has a building campaign, and he uses them to create his building campaign. And God's people cry out to him. And God's people cry out, and God hears them. And the great thing is, God then sends a guy by the name of Moses to be his instrument, to be that person that's going to lead them out of Egypt. I hope I'm not telling you too many new things in all this. Maybe you've heard these stories. Maybe you've seen the movies along the way that have shown these things. But he's leading them out of Egypt into the promised land. When they reach the foot of Mount Sinai, God makes a new covenant. He shows up in a big way, and he shows up with Moses. And in this, we call a new covenant to come together. It goes from, and by the way, these covenants build on each other. They don't replace each other. We have Noah's covenant. We have Abraham's covenant. Now we have the Mosaic covenant. And in this Mosaic covenant, God rescues Egypt from, or sorry, Israel from the slavery in Egypt and promises to make them his own treasured possession. He, he promises a holy, set-apart nation. And he'll personally dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. God will be their God. And Israel will be his people. That intimate personal relationship is getting fixed. But even more so, there's going to be a kingdom of priests that are going to share the goodness and share the glory and be that mediator between God and man. But what's the catch? Well, this is a conditional covenant. A conditional covenant of grace. Israel was to obey the terms in the law that were given on Mount Sinai, the things we know as the Ten Commandments, and God would bless them. However, if they did not obey those Ten Commandments or the laws they were given, he would curse them. The problem that we see here is even as Moses gets this covenantal relationship coming down off of Mount Sinai, the people below have already broken the covenant. So it's not a great start to this covenantal relationship that they're supposed to have here. And the, the thing that you probably know is that the people don't immediately get to go into this promised land. They don't immediately get to go into Canaan. And as they wander the desert, they're doing lots of things, but eventually they get there. And when God's people enter Canaan, they do something that brings on a new covenant. They demand a king. Because all the other nations they know want a king. So they say, we want a king. And that king that they got was a guy by the name of Saul. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is anointed, but he fails to obey God. And is rejected by God. So God himself chooses David. David, the son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah. And by the way, that being from the tribe of Judah is a big deal in all the things we've been studying for the last handful of weeks. And as we look at this tribe of Judah, David becomes a successful leader. He overcomes Israel's enemies, and, and he restores the, the nation back to what it's supposed to be. He is bringing God into the city of David. And when there's a time of rest and there's not a time of war, he says, I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, hey, not so fast. Because guess what? I'm actually going to use you to build an everlasting kingdom. I'm going to use you, and this is number four of five, the Davidic covenant. 
the Davidic covenant. And God establishes David as a king over Israel and promises to make his name great. Promises to use him in a royal kingdom that he made that promise back to with Abraham in Israel before all of this. Like I said, these are building on top of one another. These covenants keep happening. God's going to raise up a descendant in the line of David who's going to build the house for the Lord. And his throne and his kingdom will last forever. By the way, in case you're wondering who that might be, we celebrate his birth today. We celebrate his birth every day, but especially in 24 days. And we begin to see this. The deal is, though, that David and his descendants must remain faithful to God. That's part of this covenant, to walk in covenantal faithfulness and to lead Israel and to lead Israel into obedience in this covenantal laws, to stick with the Mosaic laws. Of course, there's conditions. Of course, this is conditional and unconditional elements in the covenant. Despite the king's failures that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, the great thing is, is God guaranteed a faithful Davidic king on the throne. That brings us to today. Huge history lesson I just kind of shoved at you all in like five minutes. That brings us to today. And in it, since September, we've been studying in the period of this Davidic covenant. And we've seen a time of kings that have chosen to do right in the eyes of the Lord. And we've seen kings that have chosen to, well, not so much. And in this, last week we looked at a good king, King Josiah. King Josiah, even though his dad and his grandfather were terrible kings and set a poor example and poor role models, he chose to follow a great-grandfather in Hezekiah. He chose to follow David and the stories he had led from them. And in it, he said, this is how we're going to be a good king. This is how we're going to reinstitute God into the law and follow him with it. We're going to make him front and center. And today, we're going to look at one of the prophets that probably helped him Bring that reinstitution of the law. I told you at the beginning to open up to Jeremiah. We're actually going to be there now. So go ahead and have, you have your Bibles open to it. Jeremiah was a part of seeing the laws reformed and put into place by Josiah. But here's the thing. He also saw Josiah die and watch those laws and reforms get broken and fall apart again. Ultimately, this was Jeremiah's purpose as a prophet. His purpose was to call and lead the people into a process of accepting the judgment of God. Doesn't that sound fun? He was called to lead the people in the process of accepting the judgment of God and then also lead them in repentance. But how would he do that? Well, he would do it in hope and a promise. Our fifth covenant and the last one that was ever needed to be made. The fifth covenant is what we call the new covenant covenant the number five of five while it may seem harsh in the way that god worked god had a plan he sent his people into exile he sent his people into exile through the babylonians and exile meant the death of israel it meant literally the death of judah it meant the death of their identity it meant the death of a hope in a future it meant the death of everything they thought they knew because sometimes you have to wipe it away and you have to start all over again because the people of israel needed that they needed to be brought back on trap because you can't have a new life without the old life dying and this is where we find ourselves this is where we find jeremiah they needed it because you know what israel was all kinds of rebellious 
They were all kinds of rebellious. As a matter of fact, if you look in the book of Jeremiah, as a prophet, as he's speaking to them, as he's prophesying to them, there's over a hundred times he tells them to repent. And they don't listen. Over a hundred times he tells them to repent. Look at some of just the issues they have as you look through the book of Jeremiah. If you have that book open, go to chapter 2. Verse 13, it says this, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of the living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Basically saying they are not chasing after God. They are chasing after the things of this world that will not fulfill. They will not fulfill. And they're going to leave God out of the picture until they absolutely need him. Glad that Israel is the only one that does that, right? We don't struggle with that, do we? Chasing after things that, that don't quite fulfill. If you jump over just a couple of chapters into verse, or chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Lord, don't your eyes look for faithfulness? How, you have struck them, but they have felt no pain. You finished them off, but they refused to accept discipline. They made their faces harder than rock, and they refused to return. Even in a time of crisis, even in a time of discipline, they are still stubborn kids. And they're those kids that say, I don't care at all. Spank me again. It doesn't matter. You ever had one of those in your house? Maybe. I'm not saying that any of my kids are that way, but I could probably point to a couple. Uh, the, the thing is, is that they're like, you know what? We don't need it anymore. And jo- Jeremiah is saying, you have to listen. One chapter over, verse six, 10 of chapter 6. Who can I speak to and give such a warning that they will listen? Look, their ear is uncircumcised. So they cannot pay attention. See, the word of the Lord has become contemptible to them. And they find no pleasure in it. So this isn't, they're not even stubborn anymore. Now they're just not listening. They don't, they don't care. You know, in, in Dale, he, he makes a very big point to say, look, Dad, I'm listening. Look, Dad, I'm listening. If one of the other ones is not obeying, he's like, look, Dad, I'm listening. I'm listening. I, I'm the good kid right here, right now. The, the other ones, mm, they're not the good kids. They're, they're right here and they're like, I will not listen. I will just cross my arms. I will be stubborn. I'm going to push you away. To the point where in chapter 15, the first verse of chapter 15, he's telling Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. Don't offer them repentance. Because even if Moses and Samuel should stand before me, Two people who I really care about. If they were to stand before me, my compassions would not reach out to these people. They could not change my mind. Send them from my presence and let them go. Jeremiah is saying, you know, God's people and really all people are just messed up. They're messed up. This is the whole, if you get to verse 9 of chapter 17, listen to what he says. He says, this is why they're messed up. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? There's a growing problem since the beginning of creation. The growing problem from the beginning of creation has caused all the issues with all of the first four covenants. And that's the reason why we need a fifth. Because in the first four, God says, I have held up my end of the bargain. But you all, you all, have done messed up over and over and over and over again. You can't hold up your end of the bargain. We have to do something. And why can't you hold up your end of the bargain? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, it's a heart issue. 
It's a heart issue. The old covenant, people did their best to follow the rules. And in following the rules, anything that they did wrong and couldn't do in that, they would take a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would cover up the things they had done wrong. That was the first real four covenants in it all. But the problem was, it wasn't changing the heart. It was only masking the exterior. Sometimes we fall in that, don't we? Where we try to do good, where we try to to say, well, God, as long as I have this list of good things, I, I jokingly said as we were praying this morning, I said, you know, sometimes I think Santa Claus ruins it for us all. That as long as we do the right thing, we'll end up on the good list. But if you do something wrong, you'll end up on the naughty list. That's right. And we think that's the same way God works. But that's not how it is, because if that were the case, we'd all be on the naughty list, because our heart is deceitful. It is utterly wicked. And so when we see this, we see this bigger than just a behavior issue. They had drifted away, even in trying to follow the laws. They were doing things in their own pride, which in itself is a sin. And so God says, we need to do something different. And that's where this next one comes in. While the people are in uh, exile, in Babylonian captivity, we see Jeremiah write these words, starting in verse 27 of chapter 31. He says, look, the days are coming. Look, the days are coming. Today, I started off with the fact that today is a day of hope. If you look at the Advent calendar, Advent wreath, today is a day of hope. This is giving hope. The day is coming. There is a future. Something's going to happen. This week, we got our court date for going to Bulgaria. And I'll tell you what, there's this relief that comes over you when you get that court date because everything's just hanging in limbo. You have no end in sight until that court date comes. Our court date is next Tuesday. And what happens with that court date, and, and Christy can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but basically they say she is ours. Glory is ours. Her name will be put on a birth certificate with our name as her parents. And then from days after that, it'll take some time to get through the process. And they're going to do some different things with that birth certificate. And then they're going to give us travel dates. And when we get those travel dates, Christy's going to go to Bulgaria. And she's going to pick up our daughter to be part of our family forever. There is hope in the fact that we have that end date. There is a hope that is coming. And I'll tell you, last night we made our... I shouldn't say we made the mistake, but we watched a video that is on YouTube about the abandoned children of Bulgaria. It's about an hour and a half long, and it was heartbreaking. It's one little town with one orphanage that describes these orphanages across the the country, really across the globe, that just neglect and and the, the pain and the suffering and the hurt that is found from these abandoned children. And they, they focus on one little girl during this video that, that wasn't so much even a little girl, but she just had autism. And her mom didn't want her, put her into this institution. And in this institution, she just kept saying, well, my mom's going to come back and get me. My mom's going to come back and get me. My mom's going to come back and get me. And she would write letters, and she would just get dressed up for the day, waiting for her mom to show up with no actual knowledge that her mom was not coming back to get her. Her mom sent her as far away to the furthest institution she could because she didn't want her close. That's that's crushing to even think that. As a matter of fact, I told Christy as the the video ended, I said, all right, so 
I think we just need to start an orphanage in Bulgaria and be the awesome one that all the missionaries want to come to. And we'll show these people how to take care of children. The children matter, whether they have a special need or not. And there's this brokenness that is there. And the thing is, is that I can't even imagine being the child. There's children that were blind that have since just withered away because there was no hope. So these, as we look at this, he's telling the people, the Israelites, there is hope. The great thing is God has never left them. But he's saying we're going to have this reuniting time, uh, coming back together. It says, the Lord, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will sow the house of Israel. By the way, the house of Israel at this point in time had been destroyed for almost 100 years. And the house of Judah, with the seed of the people and the seed of the animals, I'm going to replant you guys just as I watched over them. Once again, he was there to uproot and to tear them down, to demolish and to destroy, to cause disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant them. This is the Lord's declaration. In those days, it will never again be said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Rather, each will die for his own iniquity. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Now you're like, what's the deal with the sour grapes? How's that, how's that mix in there? What it's basically saying is, is there's a spiritual fruit that comes from our lives, generally in a lineage-type fashion. And people, at this point in time, if you had good fruit, well, that was a good lineage. That was a good thing. Sour fruit, not so good. And people were blaming and saying, God, we can't follow your rules because of our parents. We can't do things because the character of our parents was wicked and against you. And therefore, we didn't have a choice. Now, of course, we talked about that last week when we looked at Josiah. And Josiah decided to not follow in the footsteps of grandpa and dad and instead go further back and see the right footsteps. See, we don't inherit character. We just get to see and observe the tendencies and we can choose to either adopt, adapt, or abandon what we see. We, we can choose that for ourselves, but these people are saying, I can't choose. God, you don't understand the situation that you put me in. And so God says here at the end, each will have your consequences. You will die for your own iniquity. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. It's no longer about what your dad did. It's going to be, God does not have spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. And that's why it picks up in verse 31. It says, look, again, the same statement as before. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant. This is the only time these words are used in the Old Testament. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made. See, God, by the way, is the one who's instituting this. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand. It's all God's doing, by the way. To lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So God held up his end of the bargain. Man, once again, broke his, even though I am their master. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will. And notice how many times it says I will in this, by the way. I will make with the house of Israel after those days the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor, his brother, 
or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. And from the least of the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is the new covenant. After this roller coaster of success and failure of trying to keep the Mosaic covenant, of trying to keep the Davidic covenant, the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights, he says, you know what? In my grace, I will make a new covenant for my people. One that will change everything through God. Not through man trying to fulfill, not through man trying to do, not through man trying to earn, but he will bring a savior, a savior that we celebrate today, a savior that we'll celebrate tomorrow, a savior that we celebrate every day because he has fulfilled this new covenant. When we took communion a couple of weeks ago, you heard me say as we read from 1 Corinthians, you'll also hear it throughout the gospels, that he says, when you take this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying right there, I am fulfilling what Jeremiah prophesied about hundreds of years before. This is my goal. This is why I am here. My blood poured out fulfills the old covenant. By the way, it didn't wipe it away. Even Jesus said that. It wasn't like we just threw the law away. But he fulfilled that old covenant and began the new one prophesied about. But why is there a need? I guess if there's two questions we have today, the first one is this, why is there a need for a new covenant? Why is there the need that is there? And we have to be careful when we see the word new, because a lot of times when we think new, we think brand spanking new. But in this, it's actually the Hebrew word chadash. I know that sounds great, doesn't it, that I sound real smart when I say that. I just had to listen to that, how to pronounce it uh, on, online. But it doesn't mean the new that you think it means. It actually means to be renewed, to be renovated, to be rebuilt, or to be refurbished. Now, when you think about that, it's not the fact that he wiped it out and started all over again. This, instead, is to be renewed. It's a renewed covenant that God is going to build his people back up. Remember I told you that exile brought death to Israel and exile brought death to Judah and death to their identity and death to everything they knew? Well, if you're going to rebuild something, if you're going to rebuild a car, if you're going to rebuild furniture, you've got to wipe away all the junk and you've got to start at the core. You've got to start at the base. And that's exactly what God was doing with Israel. See, the problem with the old covenant is it was full of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Thou shalt and thou shalt nots that the people struggled with because of their hearts, because of sin. And they tried to follow on the exterior. They tried to make it look good on the exterior, but their insides were all jacked up. Even the religious leaders, got, uh, Jesus calls them out for that. When he says, hey, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, all pretty on the outside, but full of nasty death on the inside. Jesus calls it out there too. So when we start seeing this, we see that people just couldn't keep up their end of the bargain. So God was going to do something. And that's why it says, I will make a covenant. I will teach them and write on their hearts. No longer external, but we're going to work on that heart. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive. So what does the new covenant, second question, what does the new covenant mean for you and for me? What does the new covenant mean for Israel? Well, first, I think we have to read what he puts there. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. 
Jesus tells us in John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you to guide you in all truth. And you know, at the beginning of John, in John 1, 1, as John is John 1, 14, you'll see that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word that is going to be written on our hearts. And for all the time leading up to this point, it was about doing your best to fulfill this law. Doing your best to follow through. But everybody failed because doing what was external was not going to change what was internal. It had to be from the inside out. See, this is 99% of religions today. Do on the external and hopefully it'll work for you to appease that God. But that's not how God works. He says, I'm going to work on your inside. And this is how Christianity is different. Because outside legalism and following rules still leads to sin. Still leads to pride. Still leads to rebellion. Because the heart naturally leans that way. Sometimes we think that if I obey, it'll lead me into a new covenant with God. But that's not what the new covenant's about. The new covenant leads us to obey and want to follow. Once again, changing our hearts from the inside out. We need a new heart. We need transformation. We don't just need rules to follow. We need restoration. And that's what God does. He is the one that changes the my will be done to thy will be done. We can't just do that on our own. So that's the first thing that we read. It says, I'm going to put myself in their hearts and in their minds. The second thing says, I'm going to be their God and they will be my people. See, the new covenant like the old is about community. It's about this covenantal community. We together are God's people. We have an individual relationship with him, which is amazing. And we have a community relationship with him, which is also amazing. I mean, really, it's three sides. We have the God side, which is the most amazing part. The first of all, that, that God would even want you or me to be in a relationship with him. That's the, the first part, that he would send his son to purchase my parting. That's amazing. Full-on amazing. Then you have the individual side. I have accepted Jesus into my heart. I have accepted him as my personal savior. Just as amazing. But the the third part, I think we have a tendency to forget that in this one-on-one relationship, we forget that there's a community that is involved as well. See, as we begin to follow, we are God's people. We follow Jesus. There is a relational and a discipleship process involved in following Jesus. We work together in our pursuit of the one who was crucified for us. We, iron sharpens iron. We work together. We take up our crosses and walk together. We Each of us decides to follow and become a bigger part of the whole. See, Paul describes it as a body, that we are individual parts to make up one body. And we miss that. But that's where it says, we are God's people and he is our God. So that's the second part. The third thing we see here is this. What Jeremiah tells us, they will all know me. Have you ever just stopped and thought about that for a second? That you get to know God Did you know that that false gods don't work that way? That false gods, most people just try to appease them. Most people just don't want them to be angry with them. 
That is the, the mentality that, that comes into when we look at these false gods. God wants to know you. God wants to love you. God wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants this. This is not typical. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 17, and you see Paul, when all these people are worshiping all these different, they have all these altars set up, there's one set up to the unknown God. And he says, guys, that is not an unknown God. The one that you worship, he knows you, and he wants you to know him. It's an amazing thing because of this new covenant. The fourth thing we see, though, is this, and probably the one that blows me away the most. It says, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. See, part of the old covenant was the fact that priests had to make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people because we couldn't even cross that barrier. Because we weren't good enough. And it was something that happened year after year after year. And we saw that in the lives of the people that it didn't change their hearts. It didn't change their ways. We, we already know that, that the old covenant wasn't working. But under the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins and the heart change, it was made possible because of a sacrifice, an all-atoning, one-time, necessary, perfect lamb found in Jesus Christ. That is mind-blowing. Is it not? When we stop and we think about it, we should get excited. I mean, when he says, guys, Jeremiah tells him, look, the days are coming. There's hope that is coming. There's a future that is coming. And it talks about it all throughout the New Testament. This new covenant, the thing that changed everything, the core of Jeremiah is that we are all idolaters. We're all chasing after things that are not God, but through the new covenant, we're saved from our idolatry. We're saved from our immorality. We're saved from our inability to obediently follow God. We are saved from our self-centeredness. We are saved from our self-righteousness. We are saved from our sin of racism, our sin of apathy, our sin of oppression of others, as well as the oppression that sin puts on us. We're saved from that, but we're not just saved from, we're also saved to something greater. We're saved to something greater. We are saved to a redeeming life found in God. We are saved to a life of worship. We are saved to celebrate the glory that has been shown us through God in his actions, in his love for us. We celebrate we are no longer dead to our sins. We celebrate the ministry of reconciliation that we're saved to. We are saved to tell the goodness of God and the mercy of God, and the grace of God that is all found in Him. We are saved that we have hope no matter the situation. We are saved to know there is something greater than this world, that even when we watch a heartbreaking video, even when we see the news, even when we see hurt and pain, there is something greater. There is that hope. And that hope is that we have not been forgotten by God that we are loved by him. And we have those things because of what Jesus did on our behalf. The hope that is found in Jeremiah, I hope it amazes you. I hope it excites you. I hope that it prepares you for the season of Christmas that it isn't just about some fat guy with a white beard bringing stuff to your house. That it is all about the fact that Jesus brought the ultimate gift of himself, 
down to this earth to live, to die, and to raise again for you and for me. That should excite you. That should bring you hope, and it should bring you to the place that we understand that we are not just saved from all the bad stuff, but we're saved to share that with people. If somehow, some way, this does not excite you, if somehow, some way, this doesn't inspire a relationship with him, we need to talk. We need to see what God is doing in your life and see how we can help you take those steps to grow closer because that's what we're about, helping you take that next step in your journey with Jesus Christ. 